Okay, so Dave just went through the pre-mill position. I'll be going through the amillennial position and we'll follow the same general outline that you can see in your notes. So uh, at the start, the amill position, the name is a little bit misleading, right? Ah means no, so you can say no millennium, which could lead you to believe that the amillennial does not believe in the thousand year reign of Christ, which is wrong. The amillennial does believe in the millennial reign of Christ, and they believe it is a symbolic reign stretching from his first coming to his second coming. And we'll get into that more in a little bit. So during this time, the gospel will go forth, but evil can and may go forth with it. So that does not necessarily mean things will get better and better, but it does not also mean things will get worse and worse. The amillennial is a little bit less dogmatic on whether things will get better or worse before Christ returns than the other positions. However, what is clear is that when Christ comes back, he comes back cataclysmically. So when he returns in his second coming, judgment, the new heavens and the new earth, the resurrection, all happen at once. And so Christ does not return and then necessarily sin continues for another thousand years, nor is the, the world basically Christian before Christ comes. He returns and all of those happen at his second coming. And so those are the high level cliff notes. Uh, I wanna talk about three maybe primary points and texts for the Amel position. So we're gonna talk about the nature of the kingdom, the nature of the millennium, and the nature of the ages. So kingdom, millennium, ages. So starting with the kingdom, Brian mentioned this in the intro, this biblical idea of already not yet. So there are some things that Christ has inaugurated in his first coming, he's begun, that are not yet fully consummated. So a, single, a simple example would be sin. You as a Christian are freed from sin. It does not have dominion over you. And yet you still struggle with, this, with sin in this life until Christ returns. Already not yet. And so this idea is important as we think about the kingdom of God, in that in Christ's first coming, he has inaugurated his kingdom, and yet there are still parts of it that are not yet, still to be consummated. So looking at the former, how his kingdom has been started, Christ is clear in the Great Commission that all authority has been given to him now. He says in Matthew 12, 28, that the kingdom of God has come upon you. And that he also says in that, in the coming of the kingdom, Satan is bound now. In that he sees Satan fall like lightning from heaven in Luke 10. And therefore, he does not have the power he had to deceive the nations like he had before Christ's first coming. And we'll get to that more in a little bit. So the kingdom is here, but it's important to keep in mind the nature of this kingdom. The kingdom of God is a primarily spiritual reign. We see in Luke 17 that Christ says, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Paul also says that the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So it's a primary spiritual reign that will not look like the kingdoms of this world. That doesn't mean we won't see tangible effects of the kingdom of God in our lives. I mean, think about your life. We are all very affected by the growth of the kingdom of God. But we should just acknowledge what it's primarily about. It's not about governments or nations, but it's about new birth and regeneration and forgiveness. So specifically in that, when Christ reigns over his kingdom, he's reigning over the church, right? He reigns over his bride, not necessarily the governments of the world. He does reign over them, but not primarily in his 
kingdom. So John Calvin is helpful here. He talks about one, the kingdom of Christ being inwardly transformative, and the other, the kingdoms of this world being outwardly transformative. And he says, quote, that they are of completely different nature and are completely distinct. And so when we think about the kingdom, we need to be clear to have a, a line of demarcation between the two in which we don't import some things from the kingdoms of this world into the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of Christ into the kingdom of this world. It doesn't necessarily mean governments, cultures, nations become more Christian. It's that the church grows. And so that's the already piece of the kingdom of God. And then we also have the not yet, right? Which we, we all agree on. And that when Christ comes back, sin and evil, all of that will be completely destroyed. And that some of these passages we see in the Bible about the, the child playing with the snake or the wolf dwelling with the lamb, those are going to be after Christ's second coming in the consummated kingdom, not before. And so with this in mind, that lays the groundwork for the next two, uh, the next of which is the nature of the millennium. And so we'll, we'll turn to Revelation 20 here in a second, but I want to make a brief note about how one is to read the book of Revelation. So in Revelation 1.1, when Christ is giving these signs, these vision, visions to John, he says literally that they were signified or signed to John. So as we think about Revelation, we shouldn't necessarily think of it as literal, chronological events. They can refer to historical events, but it's apocalyptic literature in that Christ is telling John that these are visions or symbols pointing to realities. And so it's less of one series of events that happens before 70 AD or one series of events that happens in the future. Rather, it's best to think of them as, as overlapping repetitive circles that still are moving in one direction, but they can repeat and they're, they're symbols, right? Uh, Kim Riddlebarger is helpful here in his book on, on millennialism. He says that Revelation contains a series of visions, each of which functions like a different camera angle looking at the same event. Therefore, the order in which the various visions contained in Revelation are recounted by John does not necessarily reflect the order of historical occurrence of the reality with which those visions symbolize. So this is important to keep in mind as we think about Revelation 20. So if you want to turn there now, um, we will go over the first six verses of Revelation 20. So we read, starting in verse 1. I'll give you a second to turn there. All right, so Revelation 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and raised with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Contextually, I would say this occurs bookended between the end of Revelation 19 and the next couple of verses in Revelation 20 of, of two passages that are both describing the same thing. 
namely Christ's second coming. So the end of Revelation 19 and the next couple of verses of Revelation 20 are describing the same event. Remember, cyclical is how we should read Revelation. Therefore, as we read these six verses, we can say that these occur before Christ's second coming, which is important. And so we're going to move a little bit quickly through this, but we see in verses 1 through 3 that there's the angel comes and seizes the dragon and binds him in the pit for a thousand years. Um, just as I don't think we should read the dragon is literal, like Dave said, I don't think we should read necessarily the pit or the chain is literal. I also don't think we should read the thousand years as literal. Similar to what we talked about in the kingdom of God where Christ has bound Satan now, this is simply pointing to the fact that in Christ's first coming, he has bound Satan in that he is no longer able to deceive the nations like he once did. In that it's not a complete binding yet, but it is a binding in which instead of us as Gentiles being unable to see the gospel, we are now able to, increasingly by the power of God, see the gospel and repent and believe. And so the first couple of verses are describing the binding of Satan. And so looking at verses 4 through 6, we see thrones, we see the souls of those who have been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, and we see them come to life in what is called the, the first resurrection, and they reign for, with Christ for a thousand years. Um, we read all that, and we, we scratch our heads and say, well, <laughs> what's going on? Uh, I'd say we need to start from recognizing we're moving from the abyss in verses 1 through 3 up to heaven in verses 4 through 6. So in Revelation, thrones are associated with, with heavenly realms. And so the vision John is seeing is a vision of heaven with saints reigning there. It's not a reality on earth, necessarily. This squares with what the first resurrection is as well. So the amillennial would point to the, the first resurrection not as a bodily, physical resurrection, but as a spiritual resurrection. In, in John's writings, when, when one repents and believes the good news, they're, they're talked about going from death to life, reborn. They're resurrected, in a sense. Furthermore, we read about, in, in this passage and later in Revelation 20, the, this idea of the second death. That in the final judgment, when non-believers are, are cast into the fire, that is described as the second death. That is a physical, bodily death. And so we can naturally infer that the second Resurrection is the physical bodily resurrection, but the first resurrection is not. It is spiritual. It is when believers repent and believe the gospel. When they die and they go to reign with the Lord in heaven. This would imply then that the thousand years in which believers are resurrected and reign with Christ is, is a symbolic spiritual reign that happens in heaven. And so, to review, that reign is from the entire time from Christ's first coming to his second coming. During this reign, which is a reality right now, Satan is bound. He doesn't have the ability to deceive the nations any longer. Also, saints reign in heaven, not on earth during this time, as Paul talks about in Ephesians 2.6, where he says that Christians have been raised up with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly realms. And it's marked not by physical resurrection, but by spiritual resurrection. And so the last thing I'll say here. Um, is that this view, I think, most closely squares with what we see in verses 3 and 7, in which where the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ, Satan comes back, and he, there's a massive rebellion, right? We talked about this. In that, I think, versus the other two viewpoints, it's strange if Christ comes, reigns for a thousand years, there's still sin, hatred of God, that precedes a final rebellion. Or, in the post-millennial view, in which 
there is a golden age of Christianity on earth, for all of that suddenly to be reversed at the end of it and there to be a grand rebellion, both of those seem a little bit inconsistent. And so the amillennial view, which is a spiritual reign over the church, I think can match with a final rebellion at the end of the age. So that's point two. Point three is going to be the nature of, of the age. Simply put, how would the amillennial answer the question, what age are we in? And we'll see how this relates to eschatology here in a second. So quite simply, there is this age, which is the age we're currently in, and there is the age to come, which is the age in the future. And there are aspects of the age to come that do bleed into this present age, but there's a clear dividing line between the two being Christ's second coming. And so we'll work through all of that. So this age is the time period we currently live in, and it's defined by what we can see as, as normal life, marriage, buying fields, building houses. Also, Paul repeatedly describes this age as evil and that the God of this age is Satan. And then again, Paul says in Titus that we are to live godly lives in this present age, waiting for the appearing of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who will bring an end to the present age and usher in the age to come. So when Christ comes, therefore, he ends this age and he brings about the age to come. And the age to come is described as... Um, when Christ talks about this, he says, Those who attain to that age, into the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore. And that his disciples will receive in the age to come eternal life. And so namely, the age to come is an a age with, where death and sin have been defeated. And like I said, these two things, though there is some bleed over, there's a clear line of demarcation, which is Christ's second coming. In the parable of the wheat and the weeds in Matthew 13, the wheat are the believers and the weeds of the chaff are the, the non-believers. Jesus says that at the end of the age, there will be a great harvest in which the angels will go and there will be a field filled with believers and non-believers and they will separate the two. And the believers will go to eternal life and non-believers will go into the fire. And so we see that in the final judgment, that is when there is a separation of believers and non-believers, and that occurs at the end of the age when Christ comes back. So they, they, they all line up, right? And I walk all through that for a reason. If this two-age model is, is correct, is biblical, that means we should be careful to not impute characteristics of one age into another. In that this age is evil, the next age is not evil. The next age is defined by eternal life, this age is not necessarily defined by eternal life. And so this sets the amillennial position apart, right? As on one hand, they don't expect heaven here on earth before Christ returns. And on the other hand, when Christ returns, heaven is here on earth, not after another thousand years. Okay, so going through some of that, looking at the clock, we'll go through the last three points a little bit quicker. So first... Israel and the church. Um, Dave mentioned this, but the amill and the postmill would agree in the sense that the church is Israel, right? And we could actually, I would say, go to Romans 11 to talk through that. We could also go to Galatians 6, where Paul describes the church as, quote, the Israel of God. But I actually want to go to Amos 9, and uh, we'll, we'll see how the, the prophet in Amos talks about certain aspects of Israel and then how that relates to um, the church. So you can turn there if you want. I'm going to go through relatively quickly so I don't uh, go over time. So in Amos 9, and, and we'll go to Acts 16 after this, but Amos is prophesying about the disobedience of God's people. 
and how they have rejected the covenant, they've been unfaithful. And like many minor prophets, though, he ends with a note of hope where he prophesies future restoration for the people of God. And so in chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, we see this future restoration. He says, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches, and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Now, reading this as an 8th century Jew, how would you likely interpret this passage? Well, it seems that there are national geographic ethnic promises going on in which a new Davidic king will take the throne in Jerusalem and bring about prosperity to Israel again. And furthermore, an aspect of that, instead of the nations sort of dominating Israel, actually Israel will rule over the nations, specifically Edom, as seen here. However, we have to interpret the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. And so what do the apostles think when they interpret this passage? So this is one we're going to jump quickly to Acts 15, where this passage is, is quoted. So in Acts 15, the Gentiles have clearly been brought into the church, and the apostles and elders at Jerusalem are debating, all right, how do we handle this? Do they need to follow the Mosaic law? All of this stuff. And James stands up, and he says, okay, this is a glorious thing, though, that the Gentiles have been brought into the covenant community. And so starting in verse 13, we read, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophet agree, just as is written. And this is when he quotes those exact two verses from Amos 9. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. So how does James interpret Amos 9? Not in national geographic ways, but through the church. See, Christ is the Davidic king that has come and now reigns, and that the new Israel God of God is the church, and that he interprets the Gentile inclusion in the covenant community as the building up of the tent or booth of David, as the submission of Edom and the nations to the people of Israel. It is a submission through repenting and believing of the, of the gospel, not necessarily national geographic promises to Israel. And so the reason we talk about this in, in regards to eschatology is the amillennial does not believe that we have to wait for another temple to be rebuilt or the nation state of Israel to exist. We believe that the promises made to Israel in the Old Testament are for the Israel of God. They are for the church. And we see how the New Testament clearly explains that. Okay, we're going we're gonna to sprint through the last two. Um, application, really quick. In other words, why should you care about this? Um, how does the amillennial position specifically affect your life? Well, I think it, it leads to a more biblical, balanced view of the world and your own walk in faith. See, the amillennial position holds two things in tension. First, that sin exists, and it will exist until Christ returns. And no one would disagree with that, but there, there's an essence in which we understand that sin will not be negligible in the future for Christians. It won't be unimportant. It won't be a, a great, easy life. And that all who desire to live a godly life 
will be persecuted. And that sin will persist. Hatred of the church will persist throughout the ages. And so when you as a believer struggle with sin, when there is persecution, that shouldn't take you by surprise. In fact, we see in God's word that it's expected, that there won't be a reduction or diminishment of that before Christ returns, where future Christians really won't struggle with it that much. On the other hand, the second thing we hold in tension is that Christ is reigning on the throne now, in that he does have all authority, and the the devil is bound, in that when we pray for nations to come to know the Lord, or when we pray that sin in our own life would be defeated, we're not praying thinking, yeah, but really, I have to wait until Christ comes again for anything victorious to happen, for there to be any growth in the kingdom, and that the kingdom will grow, the gospel will advance, we will win in this life over sin. And so we hold this balanced approach, right? That, that we are victorious, and yet there's still sin. And that there will be trials, and yet God will lead us through them. And I think that um, flowing from this already not yet concept we've talked about, the amillennial position emphasizes that maybe more than the other ones. Um, lastly, the Achilles heel. Um, I'll just focus on one that maybe spans a couple different passages in Scripture. So the amillennial can be accused of maybe a hyper-spiritualization in which they take passages that really seem to talk about a tangible, physical impact of Christ and his kingship and maybe just point to the fact that, oh, that's just spiritual. And so when you look at passages as the kingdom of God being like a seed that grows into a tree that fills the entire earth, having this worldwide grand impact, or that the suffering servant in Isaiah will will go forth until justice is in the entire world, they can either say, well, all of those things happen after Christ comes again, or it's just entirely related to repenting and believing the gospel, spiritual victory. And so I think that maybe is a little bit of a shallow reading of the text. In fact, some critics have called the amillennial position a belief in the already, not really, which is Christ is already reigning on the throne, but since there's no physical, tangible impacts, it's a not really. I think that's a little bit trite, but it does get the point across. I think fair questions are, well, if the gospel does go forth, would we not expect lives to be changed and, and people to submit to the Lord? Would we not expect people to become more and more obedient and therefore the world to become better and better. And I think those are all fair critiques. So with that, two minutes over, but that's it.